Hey again, everyone. This is Nasco, and you're listening to the new episode of Fox Tales, the music industry podcast run by Starfox. might be familiar with Starfox only as a music blog and as a curator, but we also started uh, Starfox Records a couple of years ago, uh, which is our label. Um, this was the logical next step for us, uh, already being connected with a lot of artists and curators or and other labels in the industry. Uh, we really wanted to do something about uh, the artists uh, in the industry. Um, this was really connected with something uh, new for me, at least, uh, and this is music data. Uh, every label manager and our music marketer, etc., uses numbers, statistics, and any sorts of graphs to justify their decisions uh, um, to, in order to choose the right place to invest or to find new trends. Uh, especially, this is a very big thing in the in the big uh, labels, in the major labels. Uh, the the list of possibilities is truly endless uh, when it comes to data. Um, just to clarify, if you're wondering where to look at these stats, uh, each DSP has its own platform uh, where you get comprehensive uh, data. Uh, you you have heard of uh, analytics tools such as Spotify for Artists, Apple Music for Artists, Deezer Backstage, Amazon Music for Artists, Pandora Amp, and uh, there are so many more in the different DSPs. Uh, there are tools that combine some of these stats, but if you want to get the whole picture, you have to log into each one individually. If you're an artist, uh, number I, I really understand that numbers are probably the last thing you would like to get into, uh, but I feel like in this uh, data-driven music industry, um, you have got to uh, start understanding numbers a, at least a bit, or you, on the other hand, you can start working with someone that this, does this for a living. Um, so to shed some light on this, I've got Alex Breeze here, the CEO and founder of a London-based AI company called Unheard. Um, Alex is also a former senior analyst in Universal and has a rich background in marketing and operations. Um, so just a couple of months ago, Unheard secured £250,000 of investment for its launch, which, is a very, uh, which was a very big uh, step in their, uh, in their company. Uh, its aim is to, and I quote, uh, level the playing field, giving independent artists the level of music and marketing promotion that major labels provide their artists. So in other words, the app will help more artists and labels find where their fans are, who they interact with, and which playlist they should be pitching to. So it sheds some light uh, in order for you not to do it blindly. Uh, the company's algorithms take artist data and then turn it into targeted and practical marketing tips to create impactful camp campaigns across the social media and streaming landscape. So, hey, Alex, welcome to Fox Tales. How have you been? Hey, Nasco, thank you for having me. Uh, that was uh, the best introduction I've ever had, I think. I think I need to bring you into my uh, my pitches for investment. I think we'd be fine if you were involved. <laughs> um, I'm very well. We're very busy, which is great. And as you mentioned, we're close to launching our product. So um, it's a really exciting time for us. Really exciting. Very nice, man. I'm really excited for the launch as well. Uh, when is this planned for? So October. So it's really hard with a tech product, you know, to put a, a firm date on things. Um, but October, you know, is our cutoff point. So by the the uh, end of October, we will have our app uh, out there for the public to use. Awesome. Yeah, this time of this recording, uh, we don't know when the podcast is going to be out exactly. But yeah, just want to make sure you when you listen to it, uh, Unheard is probably going to be live. So if you definitely check it out. 
Um, so I tend to ask this one question at the beginning of my interviews. What did you want to become when you grow up? <laughs> Such a good question. I think if you'd have asked me that and I was um, five, six, seven years old, I'd have probably said David Beckham. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be a footballer <laughs> and uh, sport was a massive part of my life when I was growing up. Um, whether that was just running around outside or, or, or playing tennis or playing football or hockey, whatever it was, I was really passionate about sport. And so I always wanted to be in that sporting uh, arena. And I think, you know, unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, I, I was too small and probably not good enough. Um, but I think being involved in sport definitely gave me the drive and kind of grit and determination to go on and uh, maybe make an impact. You know, that's what I want. That's now what I want to do is make an impact. That's what drives me is, is helping people and having an impact on, on at the moment, artist careers. But equally, I think as Unheard develops and grows, you know, I would love for us to become an ed educational tool for a lot of people so we can start to help uh, have an impact on people's lives outside of music too. Uh, sports also gives you uh, some sort of discipline as far as I, uh, my experience is. So does this help you? Definitely. I think discipline and being able to get up and keep going and keep going with every single knockback that you have and um, is, is a really important part of um, building a business. You know, you have to be resilient. You come back against knockbacks uh, every single day. You have to get up on Monday morning, you know, and be working from 8am to make this happen and be driving people when things aren't happening um, or working as, as you'd have expected. So I think discipline's a, a yeah, a massive part actually of, of what I learned in the sporting arenas and that I've taken taken into Unheard. It's a, it's a great point. Uh, so how did you end up in the music industry after all? Yeah, so I at university I started to DJ a little bit, as most people do. So I bought a Newmark Mixtrack Pro 2, it was, um, and started to make little mixes in my bedroom and started to put them on SoundCloud and then teamed up with a friend and we used to DJ uh, in Birmingham actually mostly, so we used to play out, out uh, small gigs. And that was a kind of a, a passion project, if you like, so playing out quite a lot uh to in different areas in different uh, different venues across the country um which was an amazing experience and then you know i needed to get a job i needed to do something uh, <laughs> that was going to pay the yeah. bills i suppose so um i got a job at a tech um startup called carwell and this was in the automotive sector but it really gave me that that taste for um startup life um and whilst i was at carwell my job was to take the data that we were collecting on consumer behavior as an analyst and turn that data into marketing insight to then inform smarter marketing strategy within uh, kind of that startup in particular. And then what I found was that I had this passion for music. You know, I was DJing, I was uh, reading Complex Clash, Stereo Fox, and I was reading, consuming as much information about the music industry as possible. And I had this skill set um, that uh, could kind of take data and turn that into marketing insight. So I felt like I had a good combination that could be useful for a record label. However, getting into the music industry full-time is really tough you know it's a bit of a catch-22 whereby in order to get into the industry you need industry experience um and I yeah. didn't ha I, I, yeah. I, I didn't have any so what I did was I set up a series of events and this was really unheard in its first iteration so I curated four or five different lineups with independent artists here in London uh, and this was rappers like um, Mugen and Joshua and uh, we had loads of different independent artists come and perform actually in the end um, and then once I'd run those five events I had my music industry experience uh, I had my experience within kind of the data world and the startup world I managed to get myself a job at Universal Music as an analyst um, 
So yeah, uh, we're gonna get into there. Uh, but I wanted to draw the something uh, to your attention, uh, Kiki. Actually, uh, mm. for our uh, for our listeners who haven't heard about it, uh, Kiki is a really really cool tool. Uh, it's actually a platform. Uh, you call it a music discovery platform, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been a chief marketing officer and a chief operations officer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm very very curious how how you uh, created it and why, uh, because it shows. For us as a Starfox team, we've actually been following for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super interesting to be able to read all the info about the subgenres in music, like origins, artists, BPM, etc. Mm-hmm. So, can you share about a bit uh, more about uh, Kiki? Yeah, absolutely. So, the the mission statement really at Kiki was to create the Netflix of audio. So, you know, when you look at the platforms out there, in particular for long form audio content, you know, you have your SoundClouds, your MixClouds. Um, however, there's no curation element, really. You know, if you want to if you want to discover a podcast or a radio show or a mix, you have to know what you're looking for or go digging, which can take a little bit of time. So the premise behind Kiki was that it wanted to create, again, a data driven and AI driven platform that would surface high quality long form audio content to you. Um as, as a user on the platform. And um, Kiki did a great job in terms of going out and finding underground but extremely talented DJs, radio show hosts, you know, podcast producers to then curate, you know, what it, what it now holds as um, a really great catalogue of, of long-form audio content. Um, and that was a great experience. And I think, again, you know, at the heart of what they were doing was around providing opportunity, which really resonated with me, you know, providing opportunity for, for talent that wasn't necessarily getting the support that it deserved. And Kiki had an amazing um, kind of space, you know, podcast podcast studio event space that it could bring artists into and work with, whether that's launching a new album or a project or recording your podcast. So again, creating opportunity for, for people in that space. So Kiki was a, a really cool project. It's still going today. Um, and like you said, I was running the marketing uh, there for um, six to 12 months. And really the goal was to create some awareness around Kiki. And we did that through, we had a live event week where we had lots of different events in different um, spaces in, in central London, which was amazing. Raised lots of awareness through that. Um, and also through digital marketing campaigns um, and also collaboration through the influencer network that we had. Um, and then I moved into more of an operational capacity because the product wasn't ready. And, you know, I think there's only so much uh, awareness you can create when you don't have a, co- a really clear call to action, you know, so download my product yep. now. Um, moved into an operational capacity to kind of help with the, the structure of the business um, in some senses. Uh, and then that was when uh, Unheard started to gain some traction. Um, so I was running Unheard on the side and it was always kind of a bit of a side hustle for me. Um, but and then Unheard started to gain some traction from some more notable artists. And that was when I thought, OK, I think there's a business here. And I think um, although Kiki was extremely attractive uh, for me initially, I think when it's when Unheard is, you know, a baby, you know, when you build a business from the ground up and yeah. it becomes your baby, it becomes almost an arm or a leg. Um, that draw and that appeal is is almost too much to resist at, at times. Well, I mean, definitely Kiki must have brought amazing, uh, I don't know, contacts, uh, knowledge, you name a few, right? So, I mean, it's always great to to have uh, something like this to uh, in your job experience. It's so true. So, it's so true. Yeah. Uh, so what about Universal? It's like a big name in your uh, CV. <laughs> yeah, Universal. I'm laughing because you're smiling when you're when asking me this. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you, Universal... Um, 
Universal was amazing, you know, like you said, to have Universal in your CV and you're exposed to the biggest artists in the world. So my job was to sit in uh, what was called the Global Insight Department. And that was the department that essentially serviced um, the top 30 grossing artists across all the record labels. So that's people like Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Bastille, Andrea Bocelli, Rich the Kid, you know, the the list goes on, but it's kind of the, the cream of the crop, if you like. And so that experience and that exposure to those sorts of artists is um, invaluable. It's incredible. And you're exposed to talented people within the labels too. And my job there was very similar to what I was doing in the startup world at at CarWow. And it was to take the data that we were collecting from the different DSPs, so from Spotify, from Apple Music, from the social media platforms too, and the various listening tools that we had at our disposal, and create data-driven marketing strategies for these artists. And that would range from the type of content the artist should be creating all the way through to uh, the audience targeting preferences on social media as the brands we should be partnering with, the influencers we should be using, even uh, even things around like music video creation, that sort of thing. Um, and that was great. It was really exciting, really interesting experience. However, what I would say for someone who I came from the startup world where you have an idea you run it by one person and then you implement the idea and it has an impact or it doesn't and you move on to the next one. It's a very quick iterative process. Going to a major label where you're one of a hundred people making a decision, I struggled with that. I really struggled with that, you know. It's just a different environment, right? Uh, like in big corporations, like you, yeah. you cannot just implement something yeah. uh, right away. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, I get it why procedures are so slow. Uh, and so the turnaround timer is very, very long. But yeah, uh, I guess there are different uh, things that you get from bigger label. So I wanted to to get your intake on input on uh, is it so much different uh, still uh, being in a major label or, and being in an independent one, or if you want to say self-releasing? Yes, I do think it is. I think. There are clear similarities, right? In that you go through the same process of uh, the artist will create the track, then it'll be uploaded to the distribution platforms and it'll be distributed to the DSPs and then you'll have a brainstorm around the marketing strategy and then you'll roll out that strategy. But there's a a key difference uh, for me in that the major labels have contacts all the DSPs, they have great relationships globally, so they have that global network. So if you're releasing through a major label, then you can access a team in Germany or access a team in South America or France or wherever it might be to ensure that your um, track gets the support it deserves in those markets. Whereas if you're releasing independently, you can go through all of these steps and, and create an amazing marketing strategy but then you have to find those connections yourself or you have to be smart or kind of create bootstrapped marketing campaigns in these markets to make sure it gets that global reach. So I would say that's probably the biggest difference between what a major label can offer and what indies and, and uh, DIY artists can offer. Um, although, you know, I think the same thing runs true is if your track is amazing, if your creative is amazing and if you're being smart with your marketing, you can still have that same viral impact, you know, and we do see it. Uh, not very often, but we do see it happen. But I think that's I think that's the biggest difference, and also the injection of capital. You know, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, money makes a difference, anyways. Uh, like, if we if we don't want to like uh, point at the elephant in the room, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it is it is it does make a difference. Uh, but I wanted to uh, yeah start talking about the topic why we're uh, uh, why we're here. Um, 
from your perspective as a professional, why is data so important in the music industry nowadays? Mm -hmm. Like, why does it play such a vital role? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all data does is it reduces uncertainty. <clears throat> that's really and truly at the heart of, of that's the antithesis of, of data and how it should be used is it should be used to reduce uncertainty. And now when you have independent artists or smaller record labels where every penny you spend is critical, you know, and very important, then it's really important you use that data to reduce the uncertainty and make sure that every penny you spend is going where it should be going. And so, you know, typically how we work with clients is we'll start by looking through all of their data. So we'll collect all of their information on Spotify, on Apple, on Instagram, TikTok, whatever, as much information as we can get access to. And then from that, we'll start to understand where they should be investing. So for example, do they under-index in Spotify followers? Do they have an email database? If not, is it important we start to build one if they have a tour coming up? You know, Do they have a bit of a black hole in a key music market like Germany or France? Or, you know, and that will then start to inform where the money should be spent. And then I think without that, so if you don't use data, it's almost like, uh, okay, I'm going to run some social media ads. I'm going to uh, use submit up to pitch for some place, whatever it might be. And that's a waste. There's no strategy behind that, you know. So uh, Just guessing, right? Just guesswork, yeah, which um, which a lot of people do, you know, but, but that's not their fault either. You know, I wouldn't say that a lot of artists are to blame for wasting money because there's no resource and there's no kind of access to... to data-driven platforms which do this for you you know as an artist like you alluded to in, in the introduction you either need to have access to a fairly big budget to get an agency involved or you need to go to uh, the various tools that are out there like the submit hubs the ads managers the tiktok ads manager youtube google ads etc to run your campaigns and for an artist that's impossible you know artists aren't marketeers they're creatives their job is to create amazing content um and, you know, again, that's at the heart of what we're trying to build at Unheard. Um, so, yeah, uh, how does tech uh, come in hand here? Like, how can you help artists, especially in your case, but like in general also, because I'm pretty sure artists would be interested in finding out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think just talking about us for a second, and then I'll go into um, other bits of tech, and I'm sure we'll come on to that as well. But I, th I think for us, what we realized quite quickly is that there are trends. So there are trends in the recommendations we make, you know, and I think what you can do is you can actually quite quickly build a set of rules or what's otherwise known as an algorithm really to, um, to generate these recommendations for artists. So, you know, if we know that certain markets are powerful for artists to run social media ads in if they want to drive streams, that can be a nice, simple recommendation. If we know that an artist should be targeting fans of a certain brand to achieve a certain goal, then that should be a recommendation for an artist. And so what we built are some recommendation algorithms that run across social media, that also run across um, Spotify. And these algorithms essentially create a to-do list for an artist. So what you should be doing, who you should be pitching to, um, which metrics you need to be working on and growing. And then from that, without leaving the Unheard app, you can cross these things off and essentially thereby complete your data-driven marketing campaign. Um, so that's what we're doing. And, and it, it's simple to start with, but it can become really complex and it will become complex for us when you start to introduce elements of machine learning and artificial intelligence, which essentially then, you know, these, these algorithms create a mind of their own to continually optimize and provide a better recommendation for the artists. 
Yeah, you mentioned AI, actually. Uh, it sounds so futuristic, uh, but we actually see it already every day in, like, for example, Spotify's algorithmic playlists. Uh, why do more and more music businesses implement it? Like, what's the gist of it? Mm. There's so many uses, you know, there's so many uses. Uh, I can think of a number of playlisting tools that use AI whereby they sonically match your track to a selection of playlists um, that sound similar and then that informs who you should be pitching to or which playlist your track should be in. Um, there are also tools that, you know, create tracks now. Um, and I think you mentioned this um, before we started the podcast around uh, there was a track created that ended up in the top top five on the iTunes chart, whatever it was. Um and so uh, there are so many uses. I think f for us, it's all about automation and, and optimization. So if we can kind of teach our algorithms the things that work uh, and add an element of um, artificial intelligence, whereby essentially they learn themselves and they continually optimize, then for us as a business, that means that our recommendations are getting stronger for artists and artists then have you know more success within their campaigns. I, th I think although AI is futuristic and incredibly powerful you know we're living in a world full of ai now you know you just think about alexa for example which uses an element yeah. of ai um so it is around us everywhere but i think within music i don't think ai at the moment anyway can grasp things like emotion that that well so for example if you're writing a track you know if you're creating lyrics really that's a story that you've gone through or that's an experience that you've had and i think that kind of emotive element that comes out in a track, I think that's hard at the moment to be replicated through AI. And I think will be hard to be replicated through AI. I'm sure I'm going to be proven wrong by some guys at Google or something. But um, <laughs> for me, anyway, that that's the that's the limitation. Yeah, uh, you mentioned already like an AI created song topped the charts. Uh, it was, uh, I think, four years ago, like I think, think 2016, uh, within the 48 hours. Um, it was by Grammy-nominated uh, producer Alex the Kid, uh, who actually fed an AI with tons of data and created the track, which is called N uh, Not Easy. I actually read about it in the Forbes uh, article, which is pretty cool. Uh, what I also found out there, there, is an, um, there are a couple of services called Iva or Amper, uh, where AIs create royalty-free music compositions, which is amazing in a world where content becomes more and more valuable and a lot of people do it so getting your music for a subscription where nobody else has used this song or created it sounds pretty amazing but do you think do you think ais can actually like be the future would you said there is a uh, like the importance of the emo emotive element uh, but do you think there there's gonna be a like a place or a setting time when uh we've actually gonna hear a lot more ai in terms of creation, like music creation? I do and I don't, and I'll, I'll provide context around that. I do in the sense that I think that more and more producers or um, kind of content creators will use an element of AI within their creation. You know, so they might feed in various samples or they might feed in someone's back catalogue to their kind of AI machine. Um, and that will then spit out various samples or an iterative version or a slightly different version of the track that uh, they fed in. And then they'll work on that track maybe with an artist or they'll work on it kind of and, and integrate their own thought onto that track. So I think they will in the sense that it will be used more to create music, but I think you'll always need that human element. You know, I, I truly believe in artistry. You know, I genuinely believe there are certain people out there who are just 
creative down to their core. And I, I don't think you can replicate things like that. I don't think you can replicate people's experiences. I don't think you can replicate people's kind of perceptions of certain things that they've gone through and then the output as a result of what they've gone through. Um, so yeah, I definitely think we'll see more of it. I definitely think it'll be involved in the creation process, but I don't think it will be fully automated. Yeah, <laughs> machines won't take over the world. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, well, I think they already are, but yeah, hopefully not too much. <laughs> not too much, yeah. Uh, you mentioned context. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about data without context. So does it do any favor? Like, does it work at all? Like, if you cannot put this data into your mindset or context? Mm. I think you certainly need... Uh, context to the insights that you provide you know because i think there's always there's two things that are key to a campaign that that we see all the time one is yes using the data and creating those insights but two is the creative element and the context behind those insights you know and i think without all three matching up quite nicely or, or two really matching up really nicely then you fail to implement your campaign properly you know i think if you have uh, a certain target audience that you've created through social media insights. So you want to target an 18 to 24 year old female demographic interested in Ash Nico, for example. And then you don't have the right creative in order to reach those people that's going to resonate with those people. Then I think you're going to totally, totally miss the boat. Um, so yeah, I think you need both. I think you really need both. Yeah. Um, like I, I just remembered about this uh, viral TikTok video that uh, made Fleetwood Mag uh, on the top charts again. You know about it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a super cool, and I read a lot about it because it's a great case study of how something super natural and simplistic can actually have a great impact on a uh, on a music campaign. It mm -hmm. wasn't even a campaign; like it, they just they just do, I don't know. They they definitely don't expect it. Uh, so. I read a lot about it that this is not something you can plan or predict because it is so natural, because it's very human, right? Like it was just a situation, maybe just a brief explanation for um, for our listeners. This mm -hmm. uh, There is this uh, elderly, like around our father as uh, in age, uh, man who is actually in Idaho, who is actually uh, working in a, a potato farm, uh, as far as I remember, and his truck broke down. So he took his longboard and he was just cruising on Fleetwood Mag's music and drinking cranberry juice and he became like absolutely viral and it's super nice to watch and it's an amazing um case an amazing example how like it's very much human and in uh in music it's still this is the the best the most natural way to promote music mm -hmm. and you don't know how and when it's gonna happen it's so true and you know i think if you if you were to ask uh marketeers within the music industry like what what caused that artist to break you know, like, why did that track go viral? It's incredibly hard to identify. You know, there aren't there aren't necessarily really robust attribution models in place within the music industry where you can say, okay, this press campaign did exactly this in terms of stream count, follower count. This social media account did exact. Uh, this social media campaign did exactly this in terms of stream count, follower count. You know, there just isn't those sorts of attribution models around at the moment. And I think, like you said, there's always that element, which is fascinating, isn't it? It's that a really clean and simple and engaging video that gets shared a number of times and, and then it goes viral can have such a huge impact, but no one has control over that. I think that's just the beauty of, uh, of humans, really, in the human race. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so while we're speaking about um, major and independent labels, uh, one of your goals uh, at Unheard was to tighten the gap between the bigger labels and the smaller labels or artists, DIY artists. Do you think with having so much access uh, to data, being it at Unheard or at all of the other platforms that you have access to, would it be possible like to tighten this gap to get more money to artists? Mm. It's, it's an incredible challenge, you know, it's a really incredible challenge. And I think the, uh, not the problem we have at all, but major labels have access to so much data as well, you know, so they have access to all the data in the world, more data than us, you know, being really transparent. Um, and so I think it's about how we use that information to close that gap. And I do believe that the tools that we're developing uh, and the kind of innovation we're going through will start to close that gap because it will mean that you know, down to the penny that an artist spends goes further than it is in other campaigns whereby they're not using our tools. And thereby what we'll start to do is see growth in this independent kind of sector. And uh, you, you see growth in it as a whole in the sense that over the last couple of years, the independent sector has grown 30% year on year. And um, I think it's now 94% of releases or, or uh, are made up of uh, independent artists or indie labels. So we're seeing a growth in the sector as a whole. Now it's a time to see a growth in, um, or an, uh, not really a growth, I suppose, but an optimization in the money being spent. And I, like I said, I do believe that as we develop our tools, we'll start to close that gap a little bit. Um, in terms of reach, in terms of stream count. Um, but I think a lot of artists, they want to get signed by a major label. You know, they want to get signed because it gives you two years or three years to work as a full-time musician, you know, because a, a major label will give you that advance and they'll invest in you. Um, and so actually for some artists, they'll come to use the Unheard platform to get signed, you know, to make sure that when they're running their own campaigns as an indie artist, they're growing quite nicely and they're growing quicker than they would otherwise bang, they then get signed because they've grown their metrics quite nicely. So I think... Yeah, they get noticed. They get noticed. And yes, we want to close that gap. But equally, if artists, you know, they want to get a label deal and that's their goal, go for it. You know, I'm for, I'm all for that. I don't... I never really... I'm not going to slate major labels because I think they do a, a great job in terms of uh, yeah. what they do in breaking artists. Um, and, you know, I don't want to position us as like us versus the majors. But equally, I do want us to use the experience that I've had at a major label uh, and improve that for independent artists. I think that's one of the keys. Yeah, and I also think the music industry had kind of changed in one of the last podcasts. I, I also mentioned uh, Georgia Smith, but like seeing her from being a super like small and underground artist. And actually I was talking to uh, Marta at uh, True Thoughts, who was actually there when this was happening. So she was like playing with Ezra Collective and everything. And now she's she's having uh, billboards on Times Square and like she's a huge pop star, but at the same time, she's still doing what she wants. So I think also the big games has changed. Mm. Like people are looking for more, I don't know, real artists, like natural, not just like the next pop star. Uh, as an mm. audience, which is, I think, great. So in a way, you can say that the the playing field is leveling up for, like it's interchangeable between the like the majors and the, the indie labels. Mm. And also there's, there are some indie labels that are pretty big nowadays, like Ninja Tune, for example. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Um, so uh, I know a lot of artists are listening to us. So would you be able to like uh, 
say a few things which they should be paying attention to when it comes to data because they every every artist has access to Spotify for artists or other similar platforms um other similar tools in the uh, other DSPs mm, yeah yeah definitely i think and uh, and before i go into um data and a few tips in there i think one of the most important things that we always say to artists is uh, focus on your creative like spend time focusing on your track spend time focusing on your music video your promo clips have a look at the landscape so have a look at if you're in hip-hop have a look at what heady one's doing have a look at what drake's doing have a look at what um whoever's doing essentially in that genre and then find little niches within that you know find what you find appealing in that video um and, and try and create something that, yes, is appealing to that audience you're going for, but also allows you to stand out. You know, you want to create a brand that stands out. You don't want to release a music video with cars and girls and flamethrowers if you're in hip hop, because that, <laughs> is, that isn't going to stand out. And I can tell you that now, because yeah. we probably see five a week um, at Unheard Alone. Um, and so I would definitely say, and uh, maybe that does um, kind of move on to the next part around using data, because have a look at that landscape, you know, do some qualitative research to find out what, what resonates with people, but also what sets you apart from people. That's really, really important. And then uh, I, I read an article over the weekend, actually, that um, was around a research report that um, someone had done on Facebook and ads targeting. And what they'd found is that you can actually reach one specific person on Facebook if you have the right targeting preferences. So if there's one person you want to reach, you can set the targeting preferences in Ads Manager and you can reach that one person. That's actually how granular you can get with the targeting. And so again, what I'd say here is uh, use your data that you collect from Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, you know, your age, your demographic, your brand interests, uh, what other platforms are your audience engaging with, apply your kind of qualitative knowledge of what you think they might like to is there like uh, do you have a gaming cohort within your audience apply that to your social media ads and then test so create little different audiences for uh, create an anime audience you know create a gaming audience create um, a brand audience uh, a similar artist audience and test you know you don't have to spend a lot of money but test see which works for you um, and then once you've gone through that testing period then you'll know who your audience is you'll know the type of content that resonates with them then you can apply that and extrapolate that over your campaign. Um, so I think those uh, those sorts of things are really important and don't have, cost a lot of money. You know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. Um, and then I guess the final thing I'd mention is um, I'm a true believer in having an always-on approach. I think artists should be, whether it's releasing or not, doesn't really matter too much. Yes, you should have an optimal cadence in between each of your releases. You know, you should be releasing quarterly or monthly if you can but always be investing in marketing. So, and that doesn't mean investing money, it means investing time as well. So what I would say is if you have the capacity to spend one pound a day or two pounds a day on social media ads off cycle, then you should be doing that. You know, you should always be bringing new people to your profile. Um, and then what you should do when it's your release is just turn up the dial. So go from one pounds a day to five pounds a day. And then what you're doing is you're building and maintaining momentum. So often we see artists releasing a track, they, their stream count peaks after, you know, a week. And then over the next two, three weeks, it comes back down. And sometimes it comes back down to the number they started on, you know, because there isn't that thought about, uh, okay, what do I need to do after my release? How can I maintain this momentum? Um, and like I said, you don't have to be spending money on this. You could just be posting content regularly. Or you could be doing a live stream on like Twitch or whatever it is. But think about that always on approach. Um, 
I think that's really important. And then there's lots of other hacky things that um, that we could talk about, but I don't want to give away all the secrets. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, uh, but I would also mention that we've covered this uh, in one of the first episodes of Foxtails, uh, but Spotify for Artists has amazing tools uh, mm. and amazing data that you can use, like mm. uh, also age and uh, like uh, the, the metrics of your audience. But also when it when they hear it, when they listen to it, uh, where they heard it from, uh, and also like super cool marketing tools. Um, I'm only I'm not uh, favoring Spotify, but you like you have to say about it like it's, it's the biggest, it's the biggest anyway. So and it has uh, great access, it has great stuff that you can use. Uh, but other platforms, uh, even like Amazon Music, uh, Apple Music, they they do have similar tools. Uh, which is great. So this is like free and the actual DSPs like you to use them. <laughs> so this gives you a favor of the algorithm of editors and everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's amazing. It's true. Um, it's true. The, the, mar- the marquee yeah. feature is good, you know, where when that's available for you and kind of depending on the region in which you're listening, but the marquee tool is great. And also TikTok have improved their ads manager recently. So the targeting preferences are better on TikTok now. So, you know, uh, and you can you can still get that viral effect on TikTok. You can reach a lot of people for a small investment. Um, so definitely recommend looking at those ancillary platforms, like you mentioned. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, something I wanted to uh, speak about briefly is the so-called Playola, or paying for, to be playlisted on third-party playlists on DSPs mainly, because you cannot pay to get uh, on an editor on Spotify. Um, it's not illegal per se. However, it's highly unethical and it can ultimately result in uh, your music being taken down and profile as well. Why do people resort to it uh, in your opinion and why doesn't it really do any any favor? Mm-hmm. I totally understand why people resort to it and it's incredibly frustrating. I think people resort to it because uh, they understand the power of it. Artists understand that to, to get streams now they need to get onto a playlist and you know once you've released your track you want to see even as a vanity metric you want to see that stream count moving and you'll do anything you know we see artists doing anything they can to get that number moving. Um, I don't agree with Paola you know it's, it isn't sustainable at all for an artist or an artist's career. Um, and I think that it's a, a really tricky ecosystem to navigate at the moment. You know, I, I think that until there's some substantial changes with the way that playlists are curated or the way that Spotify present playlists, we're going to be stuck in this murky world for, for a little while. I think there are a few things you can do, um, to kind of, uh, get around this and unheard are creating some, some interesting tools, which I think will help artists get around this too. So if I just touch upon those just quickly. So um, Unheard has created a playlist algorithm which identifies the right playlist for artists. And I, I say right in inverted commas. And what goes into that is, firstly, we do a bot check. So we look for large fluctuations in uh, follower count on that playlist. And if we see that there's a large fluctuation, it's blacklisted immediately because really that's an indication that you know that playlist has bought followers or whatever it might be. Then what we look for is that playlist to have an impact on similar artists in your genre's uh, streams and also follows. Um, And from that, we identify what we call an impact score. So this score really shows us the independent third-party playlists, initially only on Spotify, um, that are having an impact on similar artists' careers. So, you know, these are playlists that are um, driving streams for 
uh, your similar artists, but also driving streams in some key markets and, and, and building follow accounts. Um, and Unheard then allows you to pitch to these playlists through the app that we're launching this month, which might be out now, um, depending on when you're listening. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, we're trying to build tools that, that uh, help playlist creators, but also help artists and drive more sustainability. And um, what I'd encourage artists to do is um, instead of thinking about day one streams or week one streams, I'd encourage artists to think about a 12 month plan or building a core fan base that they can sell tickets to or monetize through selling merchandise or building an email database. You know, I think playlisting is a really important part of an artist's release plan. However, there are many more facets to a release plan. You know, so I would say to artists, don't get blinkered just focusing on playlists. Think about blogs. Think about having a live event. Think about building an email database. Think about having live streams, you know, and I think that will then remove some of the pressure that they put on themselves to land on 500 playlists with a playlist reach of a million, you know. Um, I don't think these sorts of things are that sustainable. Um, I think it should be one part of your release campaign, but not the only part. Yeah, awesome. I also think uh, we've actually covered this with True Thoughts as well. But ultimately, it would be best if you if you uh, create a campaign that inv involves a lot of things. Also, radio, like even sync. I mean, it's you cannot shine the light everywhere, obviously, especially if you're a DIY artist. But I definitely think it would be useful to kind of look away from all this like playlisting mania. Yeah. Um. um and bigger, yeah. big, bigger is sorry, sorry. Big, bigger isn't better. So that's something else for artists to realize is that we see no correlation between big playlists and playlists that are having an impact on an artist's dreams. So I'd also say that is you know, um, don't just go for the big playlists. Go for playlists that um, like, really have a match in terms of other artists on there um, and have a good brand and are responsive and you know are also maybe putting you on their blog. You know these sorts of things. These playlists are sometimes more powerful than those just huge playlists yeah actually i wanted to mention that we've we've got a, a few releases that are sticking in a play, in playlists for a long long time like mm. i'm saying more than half a year which is very rare sometimes when you uh you know when you get a lot of releases as a label uh you know people tend to support you um at, like the new releases for example but uh looking at playlists that are small but actually consistent is also I mean, it's a great it's a great thing to see, and it actually makes a difference for the for the artist, and it potentially brings actual fans, not mm -hmm. only streams, which is the ultimate goal of every artist, right? Mm -hmm. People who would listen to their next song. Mm -hmm. Totally, and you know, we've had examples where when I initially did the uh, series of live events, where an artist would have twenty thousand Twitter followers and five people would show up to their show, you know, and I think um, it, it really should be a focus on turning those followers into fans, like people that you speak to regularly, people that are going to engage with you regularly and buy tickets. I think that's really, really important and massively overlooked because, and again, I understand why, because people care about the vanity metrics. You know, that's that's the sad face of it. Yeah, the flex, right? The flex, <laughs> yeah. With numbers, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Um, just, so one last thing. Uh, I'm curious if you can uh, share. Unheard has been around for quite some time, uh, but mainly operating as a marketing agency. Uh, so can you share an example or two of it, like a success story or something we can like finish with, uh, something like that would bring hope to, to people, uh, to the artists that they're listening to? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, 
Okay, so the first one that springs to mind is uh, he's actually a slightly bigger artist than uh, than just an emerging artist. So he's a, he's a rapper called M24. Um, he had a release on Christmas Day um, two years ago now. Um, and actually, no, it was it was last year. And for that release, in the build-up to Christmas, um, one of our core goals for this release was to build an email database. You know, we knew that M24 had lots of listeners and followers and things like that, but he had no core audience that we could retarget and sell merch to or retarget and sell tickets to. And so that's what we wanted to do. And so we did a giveaway in the build-up to Christmas. We invested £500 in a marketing campaign uh, and we ended up with an email database of around 5,000 people. Um, now, five thousand. this was 5,000 people who were you know, interested in his music, had signed up, had also followed him on Spotify as part of the entry mechanic. Um, and we can now use this email database in two ways. One, to identify touring schedules because we know the location of everyone who's signed up. And we can then sell, we can contact these people in each location and sell tickets directly. And two is we can upload this to Facebook to create a remarketing audience. Um, and then we can create a lookalike audience around that too. Um, and so for a £500 investment, actually you get a lot more value than that £500 because yes, you get 5,000 new Spotify followers and 5,000 email addresses, but we can also sell merch, we can sell tickets, uh, and we've created a really, really powerful retargeting audience on Facebook. Um, and so I think that's probably uh, a success to mention because it it's away from playlisting. You know, and it's away from kind of the vanity metrics. It's around that core audience, which is really, really important. Um, and then if I'm trying to think of another one, this is this is a, uh, a tricky. OK, so there's another artist. Oh, go on. No, no, I, I wanted to help you out a bit. Like if you can think of a story where uh, when data actually made a difference. Yeah, OK. Um, I would say McNasty. Um, so we worked with an artist called McNasty who was actually on the Britain's Got Tan Talent final. He's a drummer, uh, really talented kind of musical director as well. Um, and when we were doing the kind of pre-analysis for uh, McNasty before we worked on his single. So for his single, we were doing social media ads and we were doing some playlisting too. And we were also doing YouTube ads. Um, but what we found was that there was this, uh, from the analysis, we found that there was this really, really small, but equally we felt powerful um, audience that had come from him from reality TV, well, not reality TV, but you know, the game shows. So Britain's yeah. Got Talent fans and uh, Dancing on Ice fans and you know, this sort of thing. And we're like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if we targeted them within a social media ad to grow his Spotify follower account? Because that was a, a metric that under indexed for McNasty. And upon testing the various audiences, so similar artists, brands, and then this small kind of reality TV audience, we found that this audience, the reality TV audience, was so much more powerful than the others. You know, people remembered who he was, they were interested in uh, engaging with his content, and therefore that meant that the cost per follower was much lower and the increase in followers was far greater. Um, and so we doubled down on that audience and it was a really successful campaign on that track. He, I think he now has 50,000 uh, streams. Um, he went from zero to 30,000 monthly listeners in a really short space of time through some smart social media ad placements uh, and then also some smart playlisting as well. And we took the learnings from that social media campaign and applied it to the playlisting. So we were looking at playlists that were reaching a slightly more mainstream audience as opposed to, you know, a genre specific audience. Um, and so I think that one, uh, that one is where we use data a little bit more effectively. Awesome. Yeah, uh, actually, like, I'm not an artist myself, but it seems like these things are not that hard and not like they're very accessible to everyone. 
Thank you, very, thank you very much, Alex. It's been great pleasure. If there's something else you would like to share with uh, our audience, uh, no, I mean, if um, if you want to get in touch, please do. You know, unheard.co.uk and um, our, our, our contact form is within our website, um, and we're happy to talk to people. You know, we're happy to answer any questions, even if you don't want to go for a service. Um, we want to help artistry, so we're happy to receive inquiries. Thanks again. It was a pleasure. Hope it was useful for our listeners. Uh, by the time you're listening to the podcast, you're probably going to be able to already use Unheard. So we highly encourage you. And yeah, if you would like to ask us something, we are Stereo Fox everywhere. So thank you very much for listening.